questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. As we continue navigating this dark period of our history, it is important to step back, think for ourselves, before we blindly follow everything we see on the news. How do we know if what the media is telling us is true when they are legally authorized to lie? They are government-made news to Americans. What is happening? Is this a true pandemic? Was it planned? A pandemic? What is the end game? Will our economy recover soon? Is this the ultimate manifestation of collectivism? Are we leaving the individual behind for the greater good? You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is someone for whom I have a lot of respect and deference. G. Edward Griffin is a writer and documentary film producer with many successful titles to his credit. Listed in Who's Who in America, he is well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand. He has dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, terrorism, internal subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, and many other topics. His better-known works include The Creature from Jekyll Island, World Without Cancer, and many others. He is the founder and president of the Cancer Cure Foundation and Freedom Force International. We have a more comprehensive bio on our website. His websites are needtoknow.news, redpillexpo.org, and redpilluniversity.org, which are also linked on our website. And after almost 11 years, I'm honored to introduce once again, G. Edward Griffin. Hello, Edward, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Well, thank you, Mel. I'm very well. I hope you are also. And uh, I appreciate the fact that uh, you've been in the trenches along with me and a lot of others, for 11 years. That's amazing. 11 years is a fragment of all the decades you have given us with great information. In fact, I was just watching a few days ago, and I watched this interview probably about a few dozen times. Your interview with the former Russian KGB propagandist. Why don't we begin with that, Edward? Because I keep telling people for years that communism, not socialism, communism is creeping in the United States. What do you have to say about that? And can we reminisce a bit about, I forgot his name. Uh, well, it's Yuri Besmanov. Besmanov, exactly. Why don't we discuss this first? Okay, yeah. It's really interesting about that, Mel, because I recorded that. Oh, I, I've forgotten the date, but it was way back. Way, 1984. Way back. What was it? 1984. Hey, that's what Very Orwellian. Yeah, 1984. I should remember that one. Yeah, um, I was uh, in those days, I was uh, producing shoestring uh, documentaries. And uh, on this, that, and everything I thought was important. And it was kind of funny because people thought that I was the expert because I was producing the documentaries. But in truth, I was learning as I went. That's how I learned a lot of things by talking to people like. Yuri Bezmenov, who was a defector, as you say, from the Soviet Union. Anyway, I was producing one of my documentaries. I've forgotten which one. And I had my camera crew uh, in um, uh, in Washington. Actually, it was in Virginia, not too far away. 
And I knew that the Yuri Bezmenov um, was in that general area, so I wanted to get him on camera. I had read his testimony in one of the congressional records or the co- congressional investigative committee reports. And for the benefit of your your listeners, uh, Yuri was a KGB agent, as we've said. His specialty was to, he worked uh, with the uh, novice, uh, the Soviet novice, which is their press agency, con- completely controlled news. The Soviets were more straightforward about it. They just controlled it directly by the state. And other countries uh, like ours, for example, they, they control it indirectly through corporations. But it's still the fact is that the media was totally controlled in the Soviet Union. And um, Yuri's job at the time that he defected, well, no, before he defected, let me back up. I don't want to get into too much detail because it's the, the salt and pepper really is, is what he said. But Yuri's job for a long time was to entertain um, journalists and foreign correspondents from around the world, people coming from Australia, India, the United States, Canada, all around the world, they would go visit the Soviet Union and see what life was really like there. I mean, is it really so bad as we've heard, or is it? Are we getting lies and so forth? So they would get a, a permit to come to Moscow, and of course, it was Yuri's job to greet these people as they came, and to entertain them and show them around what they wanted to see. <laughs> well, as he unfolds the story, he says, "My job was to make sure they didn't see anything." Uh, my job was to show them theater, to show them what we wanted them to see, even though it was totally fabricated, so that they would go back and uh, tell the people around the world, hey, this is pretty good over there. And I'll just give you one example before I move along, because w- one of the things was he said, well, first of all, when, when they landed, I would pick them up, take them out and give them a very nice dinner and get them drunk. And he said, my job was to keep them pretty inebriated all the time. They were there so that their mental faculties were not too sharp and they wouldn't ask too many piercing questions and they would probably not have too much energy to to want to go into remote areas. They just want to sleep off their hangovers. And he was quite blunt about it. And he said, but uh, for example, he said that we always took them to see a wedding in a, in a church, a Christian church in Moscow. He said, of course, we never had weddings in Christian churches in Moscow, but we wanted the, the world to think that we did. So we put one on almost every day or at least a couple of times a week just for journalists and visiting dignitaries. Oh, thank you for coming to our wonderful Soviet Union, Republic of Soviet Socialist. You know, uh, wonderful. Here we are, socialism. And let me show you. How would you like to go to a wedding today? And, oh, yeah, we'd like to go to where you have a wedding in a church. Oh, yeah, that's all propaganda. They say we don't have weddings. Oh, we'll go to one. <laughs> so they would go to one. And they had a, a, a cast of characters. They had a bride and a groom and all the guests coming to celebrate. They had a priest all dressed up. And they do the ceremony. The, the same couple would get married a couple of times a week. They'd have a, a reception. They'd they pour the champagne, have music and dancing and all the laughter and joy. And it was a whole show. Just an example. This is one of the amazing things that Yuri revealed. And so these journalists would go back and say, oh, everything we've been told about the crackdown on religion in, in Russia, totally false. And they would spread the Soviet propaganda. That was his job. Anyway, he defected. He couldn't take it anymore. He said, uh, and by the way, he came from a very privileged family. His father was a general and they lived. Uh, they were the ruling class. He had everything. He didn't suffer, but he saw the people suffering. He saw the lies. He saw the propaganda and he saw the the pain and the slavery that was coming out of it because he knew the other side of the story. And he said, I couldn't take it anymore. And so he escaped when he was assigned in India. He dressed up like a hippie and just sort of blended in with all the American hippies that were there. And uh, he came back to the to the United States disguised as a hippie. I guess somebody who lost his passport or something like that. And he got here to the U.S. And anyway, that's when I ran into his story. And so I looked him up and contacted him and invited him to come and, and be interviewed in our cameras. And that's how it all began. So that was 1984, as you say. And I got a wonderful interview out of it. But it was so, so shocking to the average person that I felt that it was too much. Nobody would believe it. 
because at that time, everybody was in love with the Soviet Union. And we were trying to you know, reach out to establish partnerships and establish peaceful relations with the world, all the all those slogans, which meant we were not we were not supposed to be too objective or too critical about the Soviets. And so uh, I sort of put that whole interview on the shelf and I just sat on it for, well, I don't know, I guess 10 years or so. And uh, nobody seemed to be interested in it. And then all of a sudden, about 10 or 15 years later, I started getting calls from people saying, we hear you have an interview with some guy, a Soviet defector, right? I said, yeah, and you're interested. So I was motivated, Mel, to go back to my uh, tapes. We recorded that all in three quarter inch tape in those days. Fidelity wasn't too great, but it was it was OK. And uh, I mastered it and uh, put it out as a video and blow me down all of a sudden. People wanted to buy that video, and we sold a lot of a lot of copies in VHS form, and um, and then uh, later on we converted it to digital. And right now on the internet, it's kind of a you know, I would almost call it a, a cult film because um, we got a, we had calls from all around the world. One of the game manufacturers, big game manufacturer, uh, wants to contract to be able to use some of the footage out of that in the promotion of their game. And somebody else called me and, and they're doing a documentary on the Beatles, especially while they were in, in India. And uh, Yuri spoke about the Beatles in India and had some rather interesting comments about all of that. And so they wanted to put that in the documentary. So this thing is getting around now. What is this, 1984 to 2020? And it's, uh, it, it's, it's wonderful because not only is it an amazing story, but in it, Yuri describes in minute detail exactly what the steps are for taking over a country from the inside, not by conquering it with soldiers and bombs and bayonets, but taking it over by using the people inside the country itself, by converting their minds to the ideology of, well, you said collectivism, or you said socialism and communism, and that's true, but I'll come to that in a second. But in those days, everybody called it communism, and it was. And so he goes through the details of how you soften a country up and then how you you weaken its morality, weaken its its will to survive, weaken its ability to understand the truth, uh, fill their brains, uh, the kids coming through schools. He said, all we need is one or two generations of kids going through the school system if we can dominate the school system. And we've got it. Well, that was four generations ago, you know. Uh, something like that. And so it's over now, folks. And we can see that uh, the problems we're facing today, Yuri was describing in his talk uh, way back in 1984 is it's going to come if we don't stop it. Well, we see it now. He was right. It not only came, but it's here. It passed, actually. So it's an amazing story. And uh, I'm glad you brought it up. And it leads to the second question of why I was waffling on what to call this thing, whether they call it communism, socialism or what. And I think it's important to know that, at least in my view, Mel, all of these things, communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism, all of these isms, the New Dealism, you know, uh, everything that sort of is soft and to the left and even to the right, the fascism, uh, all of these isms that we have learned to uh, speak uh, down on. And sometimes we fight wars to defeat those regimes, all of these things are merely variants of the same one ideology. And the proper name for that is collectivism. If you peel off the labels, communism, fascism, Nazism, so forth, and you look at what the people believe who are adherents to those uh, philosophies, they're all exactly the same. And once you understand that, you realize that when these countries, say a communist country and a Nazi or a fascist country go to war against each other, it's not because they're fighting over what they believe, because they believe the same, the leaders do. What they're fighting over is dominance. Who's going to run the show? That's all. Who's going to be the top guy? Uh, is it going to be Stalin or is it going to be Hitler? That's all. But they both believe and do the same things. So once you understand that all of these things are merely variants of the one thing called collectivism, then you realize that we've got to stop using those other names because they're confusing and they divide people. We must realize that all of us can understand that collectivism in its native form, in its uh, basic form, is uh, our common enemy. And uh, so it, 
it, it pays to understand your enemy. It pays to study them as I have. I didn't. I never thought started out doing that. I was never a student in the, thinking I would want to study ideologies or anything like that. But I, I got fascinated when I realized that communism and, and Nazism were the same thing. And so I really got serious. Anyway, I, I probably didn't hit the topic exactly the way you wanted it, but that's how I how I respond to your question. Tell the story of Yuri. There's so many facets to it. But Yuri was quite a guy. He risked his life to come out to the to the free world and expose what was going on because he was part of it. And uh, interestingly enough, our own uh, CIA, our own FBI rejected him. They they didn't want him around. They um, they didn't take care of him. They they didn't support him. They just pretended like he wasn't there. They couldn't argue with anything he said, but they they kind of ignored them. And Yuri was brokenhearted and very disappointed because he thought that he was doing the West a, a favor by explaining, you know, the truth about communism. But what he didn't understand was that right in the United States at that time and ever since, we have been growing our own version of collectivism. It's not called communism. It's beginning to be called socialism, but it, those are just names. It, it's collectivism. And we started to build that in World War One. By World War Two, we had we were in full bore gallop on it. And uh, by the time Yuri came along, we already had collectivism very firmly installed in the United States. And of course, we certainly have it now. So the agencies of a collectivist regime, regardless of what nation it is, are not going to be happy listening to Yuri Bezmenov's story because it exposes them. Even though it was from another country, what he was talking about are the same tactics and the same ideologies that uh, are being held by the leaders in our country today. So that's why they really don't like Yuri Bezmenov's story. And I was going to ask you, because I know he died very young at the age of 54 in 1993, just nine years after your interview. You yes. think he died of natural causes or was it more psychological pain that he was suffering? Well, I'll tell you the, the truth. There's no point to cover any of this up because the truth is the truth is the truth. Uh, Yuri had a drinking problem because uh, he had to he had to drink a lot when he <laughs> was taking all of these uh, journalists around. And he got he got pretty well hooked on booze mm. and he was trying to get off of it. But he it was it was a way he found to relieve the tension and the anxiety that he was going through. And when he was not received by the United States intelligence community, it was kind of shunned. He went back to Canada and he was brokenhearted. And he worked for a while in the radio station there. I think he worked for a little while for Radio Free Europe or Free, Free America or something like that uh, as an interpreter and a commentator. But he really was quite brokenhearted. And he died of alcohol, uh, alcoholism. Hmm. I can see why you waited before you released that footage, because I'm thinking of 1984, Chernenko, and then immediately after, then Gorbachev came along in 1985, and that's when the whole tide started changing. You saw concerts going there, and then the Iron Curtain fell, Berlin, and so yeah. on. If this have happened now, I bet you it would have been received totally differently than what that time would have been. Yeah. Yes. Well, sometimes life is like that. Uh, you sit on sit on the golden egg and it takes a long time for it to hatch. Very unfortunate. But he left us with some information. I'd like to discuss it with you, too. Demoralization, destabilization, crisis, normalization. These are the four pillars of collect. And I'm glad that you're saying collectivism, because everything these days is all about the greater good. The greater good, the individual, individual thought. It's almost as people frown upon you if you talk about you and your efforts in trying to make, th make things better without thinking of the collective. Yeah, that's at the heart of it all. The idea that the individual uh, has to be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. That is one of the core principles found that I was talking about. One of the core principles found in all of these ideologies. They're all the same. And that's probably the main one, the, the group versus the individual. And uh, so we could talk about that, but it's it's a terrible fallacy, as all of the features of collectivism are. But that you've identified it. That is the main one. It's what is the what is the cornerstone of society? Is it the individual? 
or the group, it's a very important question. The question for me, I would say the individual. Well, of course, there, that's all there is, really. Uh, now, okay, now we get to it. What, what is the group? What is the group? Can you can you see a group? Can you touch a group? No, it's you can't. It, it's an abstraction. There's no such thing as a group. It's a it's an abstraction in the mind. It doesn't really exist. It's like a mathematical concept. All you can touch or see are individuals. When you say group, it's a, it's an abstraction. You can't touch a group. It's like the word forest. There's no such thing as a forest except in the mind. There are trees. Yes, you can touch trees, but you can't touch a forest and so forth. So it's an abstraction. And when people say that this abstraction, which doesn't really exist except as a mathematical concept, then and they say that that has that has a rights or prerogatives that are greater than individuals which do exist. You've made a terrible blunder in your logic and you've set yourself up for, for the rise of tyranny because all you need now is some tyrant to come along, some charlatan and say, I speak for the majority or our party represents the people. And you use tricks of vocabulary like that and people fall in line. Say, well, yeah, I guess if it's the greater number, it's OK. But the truth is that um, if you take that philosophy, there's only one end, and that is that the individual becomes submerged. The individual is discarded and you, the individual has no rights. The only way, all you have to do in a system like that is declare that the individual, yeah, we're, we're worried about the individual, but if the individual gets in the way of that greater good, well, I'm sorry about the individual, he's got to go. And let me tell you something, history has shown the individual always gets in the way of the greater good when the greater good is pronounced by tyrants. The leaders of these organizations are always telling you what the greater good is, whether it is or not. I found out that thinking about this for many, many years, I suddenly came to the amazing conclusion that preserving the rights of the individual is the greater good for the greater number, because that's the only way that you can have a system based on liberty. Once you say that the individual is not important or as important, then liberty is out the door. You just It may take a little while for you to, to realize it, but it's out the door. It's gone. So if you, if you value liberty, you have to recognize that the greater good of the greater number is respect for the individual. I'll give you just one quick example. You know, the individual, well, let's see, the greater good of the greater number, should the majority always rule? Those questions. Well, take a lynch mob. There's only one dissenting vote, and he's at the end of the rope. Now, if it's the greater good for the greater number, we've got to say, well, poor chap, um, he's got to go. Too bad. We don't need any trial or anything. And it's, it's, Everybody takes a vote. Raise your hand. Are we going to hang this guy or not? Well, nobody wants a system like that. Uh, and so you start to think of, well, wait a minute. There, should there be restrictions on the majority? And you bet there should be. When you go to the Constitution of, of our country, that's what it was all about, at least uh, the Bill of Rights. That's what it was all about. It was saying that the, you know, Congress shall pass no law to restrict life, to restrict, you know, right to bear arms, the right of freedom of speech, all these things. Congress shall pass no law. That means the majority shall pass no law. That means the individual is supreme over the majority. Congress, meaning the majority, shall not do this. It shall not do that. And it better not do that either. That's what the whole definition of individualism based on our country was based on the concept of individualism, even though that word was never used during the times where the, you know, where the Constitution was debated. I wish it had been. But anyway, when you get into these things, you suddenly realize, oh, my gosh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket because everywhere in the world they've adopted this principle that the group is more important than the individual. And as long as that mistaken belief is held and cherished, we're in serious trouble. Tyranny of the majority, what you said about yes. the lynch mob, right? You know, I'm thinking of the 60s, 70s, 80s. I remember how the drills in schools, the Soviets are coming, all the fear. I get that. But at the same time, in colleges and universities, you really didn't see that much socialism. That's been, it's almost like a cancer is metastasizing right now. And recent polls, the millennials, a, a majority is totally, they want to welcome and embrace socialism. Why are we, and I hate to say, why are we allowing it? Because that makes me sound like a t tyrant. But why are we letting this spread the way it is? 
Well, I'm taking a second to reflect on how to answer that question. I think, I think, first of all, we're not letting it. It's not like we decided to let it happen. Or when I say we, I'm talking about the population at large. Most people in our country haven't a clue as to what we're talking about. They're not letting it happen. It's just happening, and they don't even know what's happening. That's really what's happening. So how did how does that come about? Well, I know how it came about. A long time ago, in fact, at the turn of the last century, people like Rockefeller and Carnegie, some of the wealthiest people in the world, came together, and they decided that they wanted collectivism, and they they said so. I mean, we have the writings where they were talking about this. And not only just in our country, but around the world. And Cecil Rhodes was one of the leaders in all of this. He was a, a very prominent English figure. You know, he was the prime minister of, of South Africa, had amassed a mass fortune by uh, really stealing the resources of a whole whole continent or part of a continent. Wasn't a country, wasn't a country named Rhodesia because of him? Absolutely. Rhodes, Rhodesia, yeah. And uh, anyway, he was one of these people, along with Rockefeller and, and Carnegie, who decided that the future belonged to collectivism. And they spent untold amounts of money uh, infusing it into universities around the world. But we're talking about the U.S. now. That would have been Columbia University and particularly Teachers College, which was a subdivision of Columbia. And they just gave money to the university. And then, of course, then they were allowed to populate the chair of the various departments with people who were collectivists. And by the way, they wrote about this. So this is not just theory. We have the books that they wrote. We have the statements. And uh, they were very proud about it. They said the future belongs to collectivism. And said, we must we must uh, get in charge of the schools, they said. We must control the schools so that the future generations the ones that we're talking about now, so that they get the right information, so that they understand that the old ideas of individualism have to go. And they use the word individualism has got to go. Collectivism has got to replace it. And so they put untold amounts of money into this. They hired the teachers who taught the teachers. They, they published the textbooks. They financed the promising students uh, who were coming into the field of history to get their PhD degrees. They became the primary historians who would write the history books. And they talked about how they would do this step by step. And then you can follow history and see exactly that that's what they did. So this happened because someone or a group of people with a lot of money wanted it to happen laid the plans for how it would happen, financed it, and that's how it came about. It's not that we allowed it. It's just that we didn't know that these things were going on. The problem is that right now, as you said, a lot of people don't understand that when they say socialism was never tested properly, and you see all the history, Cambodia, Cuba, the Soviet Union, Venezuela, China, over 100, 150 million deaths in the last century alone. And you give them that fact, and they still say, yes, yes, but it, it was not implemented the right way. How many times do we have to experiment with this failed ideology before people wake up to that fact? Do we have to create a fund, a GoFundMe, for these people that want to experience so we can send them to Cuba for a full year so they can come back and have a conversation with us then? Well, I like that idea, but but unfortunately, they'll go to Cuba or wherever they go, Venezuela. Well, all they have to do is go to New York City, really. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> right. uh, they'll come back and they'll say, oh, but it's not properly implemented there. Right. So if that's the case, then how are we able to change the tide? Because the tide seems to be, the, the, we're not getting any younger. This generation is growing up with these, uh, with the propaganda that they see. What's going to happen in the next few decades? If it's not happening right now, as we speak, that's the point. It is happening now. It's not the next few decades. It's now. Um, well, but the question is, how do you change that? Well, you change it only when you can appeal to the. I'm going to use the word intellect. I, I, that has many variable shades of meaning. But what I mean, you have to appeal to the minds, to the logic, to the instincts. I suppose the mental instincts of human beings that. Something is right or something is wrong. The problem, I believe, is that our young people are going through educational institutions 
that are dominated by teachers who have been trained at these universities and colleges that I'm just describing. The teachers themselves have been indoctrinated with these ideas, and they really believe that what they're teaching is true. They really believe that the present system, for example, the present system in, in the United States, they really believe that's capitalism. And so they see all these problems. They see the bankers getting all the money. They see the people getting hungrier and hungrier and the losing of the jobs and the and the divisions and all the conflicts and the lowering of the standard of living. They see all that and they say, capitalism has got to go. See, it's failing. What they don't realize is that we haven't had capitalism in the United States since the end of World War One. What we have is just we, starting in World War One, it began to move toward collectivism. And it's been going constantly, step by step by step, ever since, until finally we are there. Wait a minute, we've been there for quite a while. We're just putting the fine touches on it right now. But a lot of people, the young people in particular, have been told in classrooms that what we have today is capitalism. And they talk, they use words like, you know, um, the uh, capitalist uh, cronies, crony capitalism, they say. Come on, guys, this is crony socialism. Our crony collectivism is what we're living under. It's not capitalism. Capitalism involves the free market. Where is that in the United States? This hasn't been there in a long time. Anyway, I'm off the track. So the, the young people in particular, and by now a lot of old folks, I mean, even my age, I was getting that stuff in school, not the way they are today, but it has started. They honestly believe that all of the problems that we see today are a result of this existing capitalist system, which doesn't exist. And they want more and more of the very medicine that's killing them. They want more government control, more regulations, more trust in politicians. They want more money being created out of nothing to plug to plunge into the economy so we can improve and save all these poor people, give them food on the table and give them medical care and all those things, not realizing that that money goes into the hands of the bankers first, and then in the hands of the large corporations, which owe money to the bankers, and the corporations use that money to pay interest on their loans to the bankers. They don't realize that most of that money winds up in the bankers' pockets anyway, and very little of it trickles down to the people that really need it. And besides, that's not how you help people, by giving them money. Well, you help them by giving them an opportunity to make their own living and to make their own progress and success. You know, the old saying, if a man is hungry, don't give him a fish, teach him how to fish. It's a very wise statement. Well, we don't see any of that in the world today. So back to the, to the issue. How do we change that? We're trying to do that at Red Pill University, which I created a few years ago, where we are showing people of all ages, but you'd be surprised how many young people, millennials and younger, are flooding to the Red Pill University, is what we call it, where they can learn the things we're talking about and see the truth. I believe that the truth, if it's really laid out, speaks for itself. As long as it's not drummed out and, and, and you're not living in a system where it says, what you say is the truth is false information, it's misinformation, and we must, we must ban it so that nobody can read it or hear it. That's the system we're moving into right now. But as long as people have access to the truth, if you can just speak the truth just the way it is, I think. 95% of the population, maybe not, oh, let's say 90% of the population anyway, will understand it and say, aha, I get it now. All we need now is a voice that can speak the truth, that has the truth, and knows how to get it out so everybody can hear it. And that's what Red Pill University and Red Pill Expo is all about. I think it can be done. Now, we're a little bit late entering the game. We're a little bit late entering this war. I mean, it's coming to an end and we're just getting tooled up for it now, but it still can be done. And I'm not I'm not pessimistic about it at all. I'm realistic. I know that we've got a lot of a lot of pain ahead of us, but I still think we can come out ahead. And I want to discuss what the Federal Reserve is doing and how it's diluting it has always done it, but now with a trillions of dollars being injected into the economy. But the New Deal. It reminds me of the modern-day Bolsheviks talking about the Green New Deal. But some people might defend Roosevelt because, you know, we just we're entering the Great Depression. And to some people, the New Deal was the moment, the pivotal moment in order to make people, you know, go to work and create, you know, public works and so on. Do you see something similar happening with this current event? 
Well, I, I do. I, I, the only dissimilarity is, is that this time it's on steroids. It's actually the same philosophy. Uh, but back in the New Deal under Roosevelt, it was kindergarten, it was child's play. Now the, the boys are serious. I mean, they're playing hardball now. They're, uh, they're going for broke. Uh, they're we, really, uh, if you ask my opinion, which you just did, probably a big mistake. <laughs> but really, I think that uh, I shouldn't say this because it's going to be it's going to sound pretty wild. Go anyway, ahead. Take, take your gloves it's off. Take your, gl- I- take your gloves oh. off. No censorship whatsoever. Whatever comes to mind goes. Yeah. And I want to preface it by saying. I'm not sure, 100% sure, but I'm very, very suspicious that this might be the case, okay? Having said that, it looks to me like what they're trying to do is deliberately crash the economy. Uh, I don't see how any rational person could could defend the kind of explosive expansion of the money supply that they are now undergoing. Because... Even to, I, I think, a grade school child, you, you can understand that if you have a teacup and you try to fill it with a fire hose, you're going to break the teacup. I mean, you can see that. There's so much money coming out now of this fire hose that the Federal Reserve System is using. And they're just spraying it all around the economy. Well, as I said, it seems like they're spraying it all around, but it's always going through the banks to get into the economy. Go through the banks first. But even so, the amount of money going into the system is just astronomical. There's nothing like this that's ever happened before in history. Now, the pattern of history is clear. We know that every time a country goes to fiat money and starts to expand the money supply at a rate greater than the expansion of goods and services, which it always does at a rate greater than the expansion of goods and services. The politicians and banking personnel always expand the money supply faster. Why? Because they can. That's They legally can do it. And it's very, it's very profitable to be able to create money out of nothing and give it to your friends or give it to enterprises in which you have a financial interest or give it to politicians who will pass the laws that give you competitive advantages against your competitors and so forth. So it's always it's always a great temptation. If you can create money out of nothing, well, you're going to create a lot of it. So every time that's happened in history, the, the countries have, have crumbled and been destroyed by a collapse of the economy. But nothing like this has ever happened in history. This is like a hundred or a thousand times worse than any example in history that we've ever seen. So I would think it's like that fire hose. It's not a fire hose anymore. It's Niagara Falls. So I would think that even a grade school child could see that if you if they understood the immensity of the flood of money that's being put into the into the economy, supposedly as a fix to a slump in the economy, they would understand that no sane person could possibly believe it would fix it. So if that's not the case, why are they doing it? Well, there are only two reasons that I can think of. One is because they figure, well, the ship's going down, so I might as well get down into the dining room and get the best steak I can find while it's still afloat. And I'm going to live well while we're still afloat, but it's all going down, folks. So I'm going to live well now. I mean, that could be possible. They just don't care about the future. Maybe they figure, well, yeah, I'm going to come out okay, but there's no way I can help anybody else, so I just got to help myself. That could be true. But that the other possibility is that they're looking beyond the crash. They're thinking, we need a good excuse to create a totalitarian system with us in control. We need a good humanitarian excuse to tell everybody to go into their houses, stay in their houses, we need a good excuse to tell them where to go, where to live, uh, where you know what wages they should get, what to think, what school to go to, what what um, occupation to undergo. All of the, we want to tell them what clothes to wear, everything. And the only way to do that is if they're on their knees, begging for the elements of survival: food, shelter, health care, even water. We've got to get everybody on their knees before they will give us that power and be grateful for what we do. And so if I had that mentality, I think I would say, okay, this system is going down the tubes anyway. 
Let's really push it down with a big, big bang. It'll be so frightful. It'll be so awesome. Shock and awe, you know the military term. Make it so horrendous that people will be stunned. They'll be walking around in a stupor. They won't be able to think. They'll be panicked. They'll be desperate. Under those conditions, they'll accept any solution. They won't ask, where's the bread? Where's the shelter? Where's the heat? I'm freezing. You know, where are my, where are my clothes? My shoes? My shoes are worn out. Oh, I, oh, I also don't have any toilet paper. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think it's possible, at least, that there are people who are thinking they're going to take advantage of the fact that the economy is going to collapse anyway. They're going to kick it in the butt really hard so it makes a big noise. And when everybody is completely confused and desperate, then they intend to uncork their master plan, which is to lock down the whole globe. And they will be the absolute masters at the end of it. Now, that's one heck of a pessimistic scenario. And I hesitate to say it because I know that people are going to say, you know what that guy believes. Well, I want to repeat, I don't really believe that, but I suspect it. And I think it's not out of the question. Well, the lockdown is happening right now. This is almost like a United States perpetrated situation. If you look around the world, I see it, Latin America, Europe, they're behaving the same way. The governments are just clamping down almost as if this is an alien invasion almost. Well, yeah, that's what they want. And in fact, I just uh, was thinking the other day about uh, when I wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island, I had a chapter in there on the report from Iron Mountain. And it was, uh, I've forgotten the date on it now, but it was, I think it was 1980 something or anyway, it was uh, quite a while ago. I think it was in the 80s. There was a report, a book came out called The Report from Iron Mountain. And uh, it was a a report done supposedly by a think tank. Um, I should have gotten my notes out to get up to date on the details. But I, I think the think tank was actually uh, uh, supposed to be a nonprofit uh, think tank that was located on Iron Mountain, which, as I recall, might have been in New York State. So that was the report from Iron Mountain. That's not necessary uh, information. The idea was that this was a strategy. It was described as how do we preserve the continuity of government in times of crisis? How do we stabilize governments in times of crisis. Well, that sounds like a very worthy goal. Let's find out how we can stabilize governments and society in times of crisis. But when you read the foreword and the and the notes and the commentary on all of this in the beginning, you realize they define the stabilizing of governments a little differently than most of us. Their definition of stabilizing governments is How do we prevent revolts among the people when they get fed up with living under a totalitarian system and have no economy and their standard of living goes down? People are going to get mad and they're going to rise up and overthrow their governments if they're tyrannical. And so the question really was, how do we prevent the people from overthrowing a tyrannical government? And they they phrased it the other way. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. This book is really not what I thought it was about at all. So we get into it and and they list of all the things that how do you do that? How do you keep people content to live under tyranny? And they were very scholarly about it. They said, well, we can do this. We can do that. Or it can this not we can, but it can be done this way. It can be done that way. And they came to the conclusion after a long scholarly discussion that there's nothing quite like war to cause people to buckle down and endure any any obscenity to their personal liberty or their lifestyle. They'll endure anything if you're in war, because now the bigger threat is that you're going to be invaded and conquered by a dreaded enemy. So in times of war, people will not revolt against their leaders. They have to they have to be unified behind their leaders to defend themselves against the dreaded enemy. And they said, this is the way it's always been through history. And we know any person that's read a history book knows that there are people, tyrants over history that have deliberately started wars or or spread threats of war in order to scare their people into submission and stop complaining about life and so forth. This has been books about this. I mean, 1984 has that theme in it by Orwell and so forth. So anyway, so that was what the book was all about. They said, well, they looked at some of the options. They said, well, for example, we could 
it could be possible that if there was a threat to the environment globally that would end in the collapse of the environment and perhaps the end of all life entirely, a theme which later be called, became called global warming. It wasn't called that in the book, but they described it. They said if that were to happen, this threat to existence might be a, a severe emotional uh, impact that that could be a substitute for war to, in order to keep people uh, acquiescent in a, a tyrannical regime. But they concluded finally that, yeah, it's a good possibility, but still you can't beat war. War is still the best way to do it. And that was the end of the book. Well, having said that, I was thinking just the other day, I'll bet if that book were written today, they'd have a different conclusion. They would say, well, you know, there is a, a real good possibility as a substitute for war that would be viewed by most people as just as threatening and just as horrible as war. And that would be a global pandemic. In that case, everybody's afraid for their life. The only difference is that instead of uh, having the threat of uh, physical destruction of your cities by bombs and things like that, but you wouldn't have that advantage, but you would have the other advantage that people would be fearful of the virus because it could reach anywhere deep into the homeland. It wouldn't be just in the war zones. And so there would be this universal fear it could strike any time, even here out in the countryside. And so I, and then the, I think the book would have ended. And this, therefore, would be and could be a substitute for war as a means of conditioning the people to endure and even be grateful for a tyrannical regime. Now, having said that, I think I just explained what is going on in the world today. Terrorism. People are not buying it. It's the longest fought war in history, the most costliest. Climate change, too many people don't believe it either. The global pandemic, that's an easy way to implement this globally. Now, who benefits from this? Well, let's start with the obvious, uh, who does not benefit from it, and that's most of us. Right. Uh, the people of the world uh, do not benefit from this at all. They're asked to, be, they're asked to make sacrifices. They're asked to not complain. They're asked to obey. They're asked to adjust to a lower standard of living. They're asked to give up their liberties. They're asked to do all these things and nobody benefits from that, but they have to do it because, you know, if we don't, we're going all these millions and millions of people are going to die. So the people do not benefit from that. So who does? Well, who's directing all of these uh, rules and regulations? The governments and their partners benefit immensely. The pharmaceutical industry is a tremendous, benefits tremendously from it. I, I, I listened to Bill Gates talk the other day on a TED talk. He said, well, one thing is good about this. We can now develop uh, vaccines that'll be, and the next time this happens, we'll be ready with a vaccine and we'll have all these pills and we can produce billions of these vaccines and pills and so forth, and we'll be ready for the next pandemic. And I'm thinking, yeah, Mr. Gates is heavily invested in the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in companies producing vaccines. And I'm thinking, boy, if you could make $100 per shot on vaccine and uh, have a billion vaccines, um, a billion shots out there, well, that's, that's $100 billion. Well, not too bad for a day's work. Um, besides that, uh, we know well, at least I know, and I'm sure you do too, many people know that these vaccines <laughs> really don't work. And uh, uh, they, uh, and in fact, they have just the opposite effect. Uh, the vaccines have adjunct, adjunctives or something like that, adjuncts. Ad, I've forgotten the word. Anyway, they're additives. Adjuvants. And uh, they're, you know, like things like mercury and aluminum and uh, very toxic things. And so people who get these vaccines will wind up with symptoms and some of them die. Some of them are, are uh, paralyzed for life. Some of them become blithering idiots. They have autism related to these uh, aluminum and mercury parts. So it's a way of reducing the population, too, which these guys like, like uh, Bill Gates has devoted his whole life to devising ways to control and reduce the human population. So you look at all these things and you keep thinking, am I going crazy? Should I just look the other way and say, this is all a coincidence? Don't worry, folks. Keep moving. Nothing to watch here. 
Well, I'm not that kind. I'm, I'm very suspicious of things like that. It doesn't make me a conspiracy theorist. I think what we're talking about here is conspiracy fact. And of course, this term conspiracy theorist is done to the derogatory terms for people like us who study political research. I mean, we just, we're just questioning the narrative. What's wrong with that? And we mentioned Bill Gates, Mr. Pandemic. And you look at 2019, on my birthday, October 18th, Event 201. You probably follow what that is, right? Absolutely. Event 201. And what he said before, he stepped down, stepped down from Microsoft to have a more, you know, a bigger presence when it comes to helping the world. Now, his father was in the board of Planned Parenthood. Are the Gates philanthropists or eugenicists? Of course. Well, those are the questions you're not supposed to ask because that that makes you divisive and you're you're nutty. You know how that goes. Right. Well, that's the problem we face, and I don't. It doesn't bother me anymore because I know that we're in a war, and when you're in a war, you have an op- you have opposition. You have people who don't want you to win. We have people that want you dead, actually. You know, and we're in a war. So the fact that uh, we get shot at, I suppose, is um, is a good thing because it means we're pretty close to the to the source. <laughs> and uh, you cannot you cannot win a football game unless you suit up and get on the field. You cannot win a war unless you confront your opponent. You and I are discussing these subjects right now. Will there become will there come a point, and I'm not talking about months, but perhaps even weeks, where the government might say, "Enough. There's too much information out there. The narrative is not helping. People are waking up to the fact." that this is an exaggeration, and perhaps it's not the virus, but the toxicity, and something is, is triggering this, and I don't know if you know this, you probably do, that a lot of the deaths are being attributed to COVID-19, when in fact it was absolutely something totally different. Asymptomatic people who come with a broken foot or somebody who fell and died in the hospital, it's raising the mortality rate and the confirmed cases, because the longer this goes, the worse is going to be for the economy. And that's what they want, in my opinion. Well, that's what you're coming back to my suspicion uh, a moment ago. I suspect that they want the economy to collapse so that they can get on with the end game. And also, if it collapses during the middle of a alleged pandemic, then you see it wasn't their fault. They didn't do it. It was that nasty virus that did it. So plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go talk about the Four pillars before we take a, a break. Demoralizing the country. Let's begin with that. Have you seen this? Because when you look back in the 1940s, 50s, the innocence on radio, and you've been at this for decades. I've watched some of your videos from, may I say, 50s and 60s. There was so much innocence and professionalism. Now you turn on the TV, and it's a total different world. And if this is going to continue spiraling down, I don't know what else is gonna is not gonna be allowed on TV in the future. Well, that's it. Uh, allowed. There's the active word. When you say what is allowed or not going to be allowed, you're dealing with the assumption that there is an authority there that has the power to allow or to disallow. Well, in a free society. There is no such authority allowed. That is not allowed by the Constitution. It's not allowed to tell people what they can talk about and what they can say. It's it's not allowed in a free system. But when when you start saying things like that, we used to call freedoms like the freedom freedom of speech. If a freedom is not allowed, then that means there's somebody with authority over your freedom. Well, who is that? Well, that's the state. That's the state. That's the uh, collective. In other words, we're back to that again. That's that mythological symbol of the majority. It's a numbers game. It's a lot of people, and they decide through their leaders and so forth. So it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not the president, or it's not Congress that's doing these things. Those are the people doing it. It's always the people. All of the collectivist systems of the world rely on that concept. It's the people, it's the majority, it's the greater good of the greater number. So the assumption is that the people are deciding, uh, Some most of the people are deciding 
to prevent some of the people, the minority, from speaking what they want to say. You're back to that again. Now, in a system of collectivism, that's perfectly permissible. That's what collectivism is all about. It's the majority rules, regardless. There's no such thing as individual liberty. It's whatever the majority says. If you get 51% of the people that decide that all redheads should be executed because redheads are associated with some kind of evil mentality, and we've got to get rid of them. Sorry about you guys with the red hair, but you know, it's the greater good of the greater number. Well, that's the system we live under. If you can, if you can declare that the majority can decide what the minority, even a minority of one, can do, well, then they can decide anything, including what you're allowed to say. They can tell you what time of the day you're allowed to go to the bathroom. I mean, they can tell you anything. And because you've adopted that insane philosophy of the greater good for the greater number. Bad choice of semantics on my part. When I say allow, I'm referring to almost pornographic language and, and visuals during the five o'clock or six o'clock news. And the children are watching this. Shouldn't there be a societal norm to say certain things cannot happen on TV because we want to protect the children? If you want to watch these, then you have to do it at the end of the evening or, or pay for it somewhere else. As an adult, you have the right to choose however you want in your home. But this is what I really meant. Well, that's, that is a, that's a hard question because the answer is uncomfortable, at least in my view. I, I agree with your sentiment that it's not a good thing to have pornography or foul language or, or irreligious um, attitudes available for public view by your kids or anybody else's kids. But who is to decide? If we have the power to decide what is allowed and what is not allowed, then other people also have the power to decide what is allowed and not allowed. So which group wins? Well, it's the group that has the greatest number. We're back to that again. The greater good of the greater number. So it's a, it's a philosophy. We like the results of it, but the principle is wrong. The fact is that nobody should be allowed to use coercion against anybody else for any reason except two. They are the defense of life and the defense of liberty. Not the defense of morality, unfortunately, because, as I said, if we have the power now to define what is moral, the time will come for sure that people with other moral standards will have that power over us. Subjective, yeah. So if we want freedom of speech, we have to grant it to others. And if we want freedom of moral choices, we must grant that to others also, even though we hope that they will choose correctly. Now, how do we protect the children? That's our job. Those are our children. It's our job. And if we don't want public institutions promoting pornography, for example, and there are other things that we don't want them to do, we have to generate voluntary cooperation among our fellow citizens who agree with us to boycott those institutions and starve them of financial support. But we can't send soldiers in with bayonets and say, you cannot do that. Once we cross the line, because we like the outcome, then we have set in motion a system that eventually will be used against us. And it's a slippery slope, but we have to take a one and only break. But when we come back, since we're talking about the majority, why would the majority allow the Smith-Munt Act? I can see how this happened during World War II, propaganda outside of the United States. But as of 2012, that is now part of the National Defense Authorization Act, and they can legally lie to us within our borders in the United States. And what happened in 2012 and 2013? All of a sudden, we start seeing mass shootings and this and that. I want to discuss that when we come back. In the meantime, how can people learn more about your work, your website, and so on? Edward. Well, thank you for that opportunity. I guess the best place and easiest place is to come to our news service, which is called Need to Know News. It's needtoknow.news. It's a free news service. We supply new information three times a week. And so that gets you on our mailing list. And so not only can you see what what we're seeing through our eyes and our perspective, 
but you'll be on the list for all announcements and uh, alerts and things that um, we think may be of interest to you. Uh, so that's needtoknow.news. When you finally get to the point where you just say, I can't take this anymore, and you want to do something about changing the situation, now that's a different thing. That's what we have Red Pill University for. It's kind of the first step in that direction. Those who want to go all the way, by the way, redpilluniversity.org is the site for that. Those who want to go even further and assume a leadership role in a movement to participate in an international global movement to do something and, and take part in it, not just be observed, observing it and following it, but actually take a leadership role. Now you're ready for freedomforceinternational.org. And you'll have much to learn and, and study and evaluate on all of those sites. Wonderful. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with G. Edward Griffin. Much more when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>